My name is Diane Ladley, named by other storytellers as America's Ghost Storyteller, and this is the episode I call Attend the Tale of Sawney Bean, number 11 in my monthly podcast, Hysteri, History's Eeriest True Ghost Stories. Before we begin, I need to warn you that the following story is not for the young, the sensitive, or the faint of heart. I promise that the theater of your imagination will be splattered in gore, violence, and horror. Made all the worse with the knowledge that much of what you'll hear is historic fact. The rest, ghostly legend. You have been warned, because this is history. It's history that's taken with a pinch of salt. He fell in love with his wife that day at the fair. They'd been married for well over a fortnight, after a proper period of mourning for her husband, of course. He had succumbed to the Black Death that had swept Scotland in our year of the Lord, 1585. Their marriage was simply good business. She was a young widow needing a strong husband to run her farm just north of Ballantry on the west coast. He had recently retired from the army of his grace, King James VI, after his duty required him to torture, then burn an old woman at the stake for witchcraft. The king himself personally supervised her confession, and the zealous means by which his grace forced her to finally admit her guilt didn't sit well on his simple soldier's conscience. After such tortures as she endured, even a saint would confess to the heinous crimes that spilled from her lips at the king's prompting though he would never dare speak aloud his opinion, lest he himself be accused, tortured, and hanged. A prosperous farm with a handsome wife in a village on the coast? Yes, a quiet life is what he yearned for. They'd gone to the trade fair at Ballantrae, she to sell her fine wool cloth, and he to arrange dates for the stud services of his war-trained bay stallion. Later, with their purses heavy with coin, they fully enjoyed the fair's entertainments until well after sunset. There were jugglers, magicians, dancing bears, delicious treats, and plenty of home-brewed brown ale and honey mead. It was while they were dancing to the fiddle, drum, and pipes, and the lights of a bonfire, stars, and the full moon, that he fell in love with his wife. By the interested sparkle in her eye and blush in her cheeks, he judged she felt the same way, too. Suddenly, they were both very eager to get back home, and they said their farewells to friends. But their neighbors insisted they wait until they could all travel in a group. The road from Ballantrae to Girvan isn't safe, they said. Recently, severed human arms and legs have washed up on the beaches between the Dewhorn and Benin Burns along the Galloway coast. The sheriff's investigation revealed that people have been disappearing along the road for many, many years, never to be heard from again. But no one realized it. During the plague, so many people had been traveling the roads in a desperate attempt to keep one step ahead of the disease, no one could keep track of all the strangers passing through. It was only now that the plague had lifted and things have returned to normal that disappearances have been noted. People have been tracking down their lost loved ones. Peddlers, merchants, pilgrims, even families with young babes, hundreds upon hundreds of people, all vanished somewhere along the misty coastal road between Ballantrae and Gervain. Yet stranger still, there'd been no signs of criminal activity. Nobody had been selling stolen goods hereabouts or had unaccounted for wealth. 
No wonder the string of disappearances had gone unnoticed for a score of years. At first, suspicion had landed on one of the road's innkeepers, since he was often the last to see them alive. He was arrested and hung. But the disappearances continued. So the sheriff arrested and hung a second innkeeper. Yet still, people went missing. The sheriff's men searched up and down the road after every mysterious disappearance, but never found a trace of any of them. Not a trace! The townsfolk whisper that it's the work of bloodthirsty ghosts, a coven of witches, or the devil himself haunting the coastal road. Who else but the devil could snatch up to six people on the road at a time without leaving any mark, chop them up and toss their limbs into the sea, leaving expensive wedding bands and fine boots to the fishes? That's right. None of the found limbs were robbed. Ghosts. The devil. Who else could it be? Lately, the mysterious disappearances have increased. It seems that the ghost's hunger cannot be sated. No one dares travel the coast road alone anymore. The neighbors begged the soldier and his new wife to wait until they could get a large group together, safety in numbers. But the couple was too impatient. He had his sword and pistol and a trained war horse and knew how to use them all. The devil would have a fight on his hands if he came for them on the road. So the couple took off together alone down the coastal road, back to their farmstead despite their neighbor's protests, she riding pillion behind him so his sword arm can swing free. His wife's whispered promises and eager hands were distracting. The soldier was barely able to keep a sharp eye out. The road was well lit by the full moon, but the shifting, brilliant beams of silvery light piercing the deep shadows of the forest dazzled and confused the eye. So it's understandable that he didn't immediately observe the huge silhouettes of men and women crouching in the hedgerow and moving apace with them, like wolves on the hunt. The road wound into a stretch of overhanging trees like a dark tunnel. The warhorse suddenly pricked up its ears, sensing danger. The soldier's blade swept from its sheath a moment before the underbrush erupted with five large shadows lunging toward the couple. He cut down two of them as they reached clawed hands to rip him from the saddle. His warhorse ripped teeth into another screaming shadow, then kicked out at another who howled in pain, sounding more animal than human. Suddenly the soldier felt his wife lifted from the saddle behind him, heard her screams of terror underscored by the sickening thud of axes. Time seemed to stretch out as he drew his pistol and turned around, but in the flash of the gunpowder's ignition he saw with horror why no one could ever find a trace of the missing people. He saw a woman wearing a once beautiful, expensive gown, now in tatters and caked with the blood and filth of years. Ropes of tangled, dirty blonde locks hung around her like a hag, though she looked no more than 13 years old. In one hand, she held an axe, sharp and dripping gore, and in her other was his wife's severed arm. The creature raised it to her mouth and tore into it like a feast. An instant later, his bullet entered her forehead and she dropped the arm. Bloody mouth opened wide and a shocked O oh, as she was blown away. 
The pack screamed in outrage, and more shadows leapt from the brush, slashing at him with grasping hands and now with swords. The horse went wild with battle rage, lunging, tearing, and kicking to shake them off, his soldier's blade swinging. He caught a glimpse of four fiendish women disemboweling his wife's corpse, expertly slicing out the heart, kidneys, and liver, then lifting her body high overhead to carry her off while a small child kicked dirt over the telltale bloodstains. He tried to follow, but there seemed no end to their numbers, and both man and horse reeled from savage blows. A shout echoed far down the road, followed by another. Then came the sound of a dozen running feet as his neighbors, who had waited to journey in a large group, saw the attack and came to his rescue. The shadowy figures broke off, slinking into the forest, the hags dropping his wife's body and leaving it behind, taking their dead with them. Wide-eyed with shock and horror, the soldier told them what happened, what he had seen. The sheriff hurried to the scene. Backed by the witnesses' testimonies, the stark evidence of the wife's mutilated corpse, and the longest list of missing persons ever, the sheriff knew this went far beyond what he could handle. He sped a messenger to the chief magistrate of Glasgow, but no less a personage than King James VI himself answered the call to lead the manhunt. With him, he brought 400 men and a pack of the best bloodhounds in the realm. But the criminals were cunning and knew how to cover their tracks. The king and his men rode up and down the coast ten times, their search fruitless. And yet, there was one point along the ocean cliffs where the dogs bayed and strained at their leashes. Peering down the cliff face, the king saw a cave opening nearly covered by the tide. Climbing down would be possible, but perilous, and no civilized man would ever live in such a place. The king dismissed it, and they pulled the dogs away. But each time they passed the spot, the dogs howled and pulled. Finally, on the tenth unsuccessful pass, the king finally decided to investigate the cave. The tide was out by now, so the king and his best men cautiously crept down the rough stone cliff and into the cave. They were surprised at how far deep into the earth it went. Indeed, the tide only covered a hundred meters or so before the floor angled up, leaving their feet dry. As they turned a corner, the last of the sunlight vanished, and just then, the king felt the caress of clammy, cold fingers over his cheek. With a yelp of surprise, he stumbled away, only to bump into something that bumped back. He spun in the dark and felt icy hands patting his face, touching his shoulders, and heavier, log-like things that pummeled him from all sides. He screamed, then screamed again when his men lit a torch, illuminating the cavern to reveal... Hundreds of severed arms and legs, encrusted with salt, hanging suspended by rusty chains and hooks driven into the cavern ceiling, as far back into the cave tunnel as the eye could see. Hideous, pale gray, ghastly chandeliers of preserved human flesh, like meat hanging in a butcher's shop. Stacked along the walls, 
were dozens of barrels. The men pried one open, and the king gagged to see it was filled to the brim with human organs. Hearts, kidneys, and livers floating in a salty brine as a housewife would prepare and pickle meats. Delicacies for the dinner table. The floor crunched beneath their feet from countless tiny finger bones, all chewed with the marrow sucked clean. The ground was heavily stained black with gore, rot, and filth from decades' worth of hellish butchery that took place here. Strewn about in careless piles were the victims' clothing and valuables. Fine wools, silks, velvets, and leathers moldering in the salt air. Priceless ropes of pearls, gems, watches, and jewelry. Stacks and stacks of gold and silver coins, all tossed aside like worthless trinkets and trash. The king and his men grimly marched on deeper and deeper into the cave until their torchlight suddenly shone on a hundred gleaming eyes, watching them with malice and fear. With a roar, dozens of huge shadowy figures attacked, but they were no match for prepared soldiers in full armor. The king captured 48 men, women, and children and dragged them out of the cave where they snarled, snapped, and screamed like beasts as the light of the sun burned their eyes. The eldest man was brought before the king to tell his tale. The man called himself Alexander Bean, though he preferred the name Sawney. He was born in East Lothian, the son of a ditch digger, but honest hard work did not appeal to him. He left home, traveling southwest to the coast, outside of Ayrshire, where he met a woman Black Agnes Douglas, who was as vicious and lazy as he was. She had been convicted of witchcraft, so they ran away and made their home in this cave, so hidden and inhospitable that they could live in secrecy. And thus began their long career of robbing and murdering travelers along the road at night. Sawney knew that selling stolen goods was a sure way of getting caught, but what was gold to them? They never needed to go into the village to buy anything. They had all the clothing and food they wanted in the possessions and flesh of the people they killed and ate. That was 25 years ago. In that time, Sawney Bean and Black Agnes Douglas bore eight sons and six daughters. Then, through incest, came 18 grandsons and 14 granddaughters. They were a clan of 48 strong, each member grown unusually large and savage from their diet consisting entirely of red human meat. Disgusted, the king had seen and heard enough. They chained then marched the entire Sawney Bean family all the way to Edinburgh. They freely, even proudly, confessed along the way to more than a thousand instances of murder and cannibalism. Their methods were so heinous that when they reached the capital city, the king abandoned their rights to a trial and outright sentenced them all to death. My young love said to me, my mother won't mind, and my father won't spite you. For your lack of kind. In one full day, the entire clan was executed 
in nightmarish fashion. Sawney Bean and his 26 sons and grandsons were each grabbed by the genitals, twig and berries alike, which were then cut off, followed by their hands and feet. They quickly bled to death in what must have been one hell of a bloodbath. Black Agnes Douglas and her 20 daughters and granddaughters were forced to watch, then chained to stakes and burned alive in three massive bonfires. They all died horribly but unrepentant of their hideous, bestial existence, cursing the onlookers to the very last gasp of life. And by the king's side this whole time was the soldier himself, the only one out of a thousand to survive, the man who brought an end to the monstrous family of Sawney Bean. The story of Sawney Bean first appeared in a publication called The Newgate Calendar. This was a lurid roster of notorious criminals and their crimes throughout Great Britain. Subtitled The Malefactor's Bloody Register, it was originally nothing more than a monthly bulletin listing the latest executions posted by the keeper of Newgate Prison in London in the 1700s. But the descriptions of the condemned prisoners' crimes, trials, and executions were so sensational that they became popular reading, equivalent to today's horror movies and true crime novels. Eventually, the calendar was picked up by publishers who churned out biographies of the most ruthless and colorful felons and sold volumes of the Newgate calendar well into the 19th century. Since each of the criminals were brought to justice and often came to a bad end, the publishers could self-righteously justify the stomach-churning glorification of the worst excesses of human cruelty as improving literature to impart lessons of morality. It's through the pages of the Newgate calendar that the public heard of the daredevil highwayman Dick Turpin, of Maul Cuppurse, a.k.a. Mary Frith, known as the mistress of all the thieves in London's underworld, the body snatchers Burke and Hare, the pirate Captain Kidd, and the hangman who was hanged Jack Ketch. All of these were real people who lived and breathed. So was Sonny Bean real too? Or a legend? If a legend, why was he included in the Newgate calendar as a historical person? If a real person, why did the Newgate calendar include a biography of a person on whom there was no earlier documentation? No record of arrest or execution, no witness testimonies or names, nothing. And while the Newgate calendar dates Sawney Bean's criminal atrocities in the era of King James VI, other versions of the tale claim the events occurred centuries before. So we still ask, What's the truth about Sonny Bean? To muddy up the question further, we do know that Scotland has a bloody history of cannibalism. The earliest accounts date back to 380 BC. The 19th century historian Robert Chambers wrote in his work, Book of Days, that St. Jerome had learned of a people called the Atticotti, who lived in what is now Scotland and who, quote, preferred the shepherd to the flocks, 
and chose only the most fleshy and delicate parts for eating. Sonny Bean also might have been confused or inspired by the boogeyman of the Grampian Mountains, Christy Cleek, or Christy of the Cleek, and his band of cannibals. According to Scottish folklore, his real name was Andrew Christie, a butcher out of Perth in central Scotland. In 1340, Scotland was ravaged by floods, plagues, and severe famine. In desperation, Christie led a band of scavengers into the foothills of the Grampians, and there they preyed on travelers. He is renowned for using an iron hook on a pole, called a cleek or crook, to drag people from their mounts, giving him the name Christie Cleek. They would then devour the flesh of their victims. Eventually, their reign of terror ended when an armed force from Perth captured and executed them all, all except for Christy Cleek, who was said to have escaped to Dumfries and died of old age as a married man and rich merchant. Even today, the name Christy Cleek will terrify bad little children into behaving. Queensbury House in Edinburgh, built in 1667 and now the centre of the sprawling Scottish Parliament governmental complex, is famously said to be haunted by the ghost of a scullery boy. The story goes that he had been slowly roasted to death on an oven spit, then partially eaten. His supposed murderer? The third Marquis of Queensbury, James Douglas, when he was only ten years old. Whether or not this horrific murder and dinner actually happened, it is true that this extremely precocious Hannibal Lecter forerunner was violently insane. The cannibal Earl was removed from the succession of the title when he was nine years old. He was kept under lock and key for his entire short life, dying at age 18 in 1707. The oven where he prepared his unspeakable roast dinner still stands in the basement, which was recently turned into a private pub for members of Parliament to enjoy a pint, and perhaps to listen for the agonized screams and pleadings of the ghostly, half-eaten scullery boy. For all of Scotland's tales of cannibalism, it was actually in England where solid scientific proof of cannibalistic practices was recently found in Gough's Caves near Bristol as far from Scotland as can be in Great Britain. Primitive human bones dating back 15,000 years show clearly visible signs of cut marks and breakage consistent with defleshing and eating. Also in that cave, the archaeological team found several human skulls fashioned into drinking cups by these prehistoric ancestors of Queen Elizabeth. The question as to whether this was a grotesque religious ritual a desperate attempt to survive hard times, or Sawney Bean's earliest ancestors is still being studied. The general public's appetite for the Caledonian cannibal seems unending. Mystery author Dorothy L. Sayers included a gruesome Sawney Bean narrative in her best-selling anthology, Great Short Stories of Detection, Mystery, and Horror. Sawney's incestuous man-eating family lives on in such movies as The Hills Have Eyes and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and in the modern American urban legend of The Bunny Man. My personal favorite reference to him is in the Japanese anime Attack on Titan. Two of the cannibalistic titans are called Sawney and Bean. 
Down the centuries, the name Sawney Bean was eventually transformed into the English folktale of Sweeney Todd, a barber with a shop on London's Fleet Street. To feed his undying vengeance, he would slit his customers' throats as he shaved them, and then his female partner baked all that juicy flesh into delicious meat pies. The American playwright Stephen Sondheim immortalized this folktale in the 1979 Tony Award-winning musical Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. It was followed by the 2007 movie of the same name, starring Johnny Depp, Helena Bonham Carter, and Alan Rickman. Without solid documentation, we can take Scotland's history of cannibalism with a pinch of salt. Yet in the bloody heart of every legend lies the darkest truth. While the historical facts and memories can be forgotten or covered up in many ways, the ghosts will always persist. Don't believe me? There's a cave two miles north of Ballantrae in a place on the seashore called Benin Head. Many strange incidents have been recorded nearby. The cave mouth is hidden away in a cut in the cliffs, just a narrow slit in the stone. This is where the locals claim the historical Sawney Bean and his clan lived and thrived on robbery, murder, and human flesh. Not many people are brave enough to explore all the way to the far end of the cave. There's a video tour of it on YouTube, though just a warning before you look it up, the jittery handheld movement by flashlight is pretty stomach-churning. Overriding even the nausea is an undeniably creepy, unnerving atmosphere that oozes out from that pitch-dark, salt-stained cave, even in video. You can feel the sense of rising panic in the cameraman's movements, the way he keeps turning back around to look at the thin line of sunlight at the entrance, growing further and further behind him as he moves deeper inside, as if reassuring himself that it's still there, that no one, unexpected, is suddenly standing between daylight and him. Perhaps a terrifying glimpse of a large, hulking man looming right behind him, silhouetted for just a brief moment against the cave entrance. Then he's just... gone. The locals say that the cave is haunted by the ghost of Sawney Bean, who cursed it as he lay bleeding out his life in the field of execution. A vengeful and perhaps very hungry ghost lurking in that cave, who would be delighted to discover dinner has arrived. A local man, Tom Robinson, who calls himself a psychic detective, claims to have witnessed a ghastly vision inside this same cave. It began with a woman's scream that drew his attention toward the mouth of the cave. A female form was being dragged inside the cave by twelve filmy, pale orbs of light, while a male form lay immobile on the cave floor. Then the images all faded away into the stone. Shaken to the core by what he saw, Robinson returned later and performed an exorcism. The existence of a haunted cave in the precise geographic area specified by the Newgate calendar as where the king discovered Sawney Bean's family is either coincidence or evidence that they really did exist. Yet what I find to be even more disturbing are the multiple police reports logged from travelers driving up the coastal road between Ballantrae and Girvan. Each of the reports say that about two miles or so out of Ballantrae, the drivers had to swerve sharply to avoid hitting ghostly figures darting out into the road toward their car. Large, human-sized shadows that crouch in the hedgerow and move apace with them, like wolves on the hunt.
Hysteria is written, researched, and produced by me, Diane Ladley, America's ghost storyteller. If you liked it, be sure to subscribe to this podcast to automatically get new episodes once a month. And while you're there, would you please take a moment to leave a nice review and a starred rating? Your opinion will help boost Hysteria higher in the rankings, so your podcast provider will recommend Hysteria to even more people. And a big thank you in advance if you decide that you'd like to give my Hysteria podcast some financial support. Hysteria will always be free, but you can either make a one-time donation on PayPal or choose to automatically donate a few bucks whenever a new episode comes out once a month. It's easy to donate. Just visit my website, hysteria.com, and click the Send Diana Tip link. That's spelled H-I-S-T-E-E-R-I-E dot com. Don't forget the dash. There you'll also find music and sound effects, credits, references, and suggested reading for this episode number 11, Attend the Tale of Sonny Bean. And thank you for listening to Hysteria. It's history that's taken with a pinch of salt.